This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Bob Young, President of Agriculture Prospects. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by EDGE, the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Bob Young next. EDGE is the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. EDGE gives every dairy farmer a progressive voice in matters critical to their business and the dairy community. EDGE provides leading-edge member representation and addresses farmers' diverse needs and challenges. EDGE is an energetic, forward-thinking organization representing all farmers equally, recognizing both the differences and similarities in farms, regardless of size, business goals, geography, and ownership. Now more than ever, dairy farmers need to be heard. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Bob Young's career accomplishments include co-directing the Food and Agriculture Policy Research Institute, serving as an economist for the Senate Agriculture Committee, and recently retired after serving as chief economist at the American Farm Bureau in Washington. Young says price supports and supply management practices and previous U.S. farm policy limited significant price swings. Current policy focuses more on risk management, but ironically, it's now other countries' price and supply management plans that are challenging farm income today. You know, I think one of the things that's holding the market back is exactly the same kind of government stock policy, uh, but not here in the United States, but in China. Uh, that the world certainly has this perception anyway that China has these, uh, you know, huge stockpiles of corn, huge or maize, uh, large stockpiles of cotton, et cetera. Uh, I think we've all been suspicious of the quality of those stocks. Uh, but, you know, again, just because the, uh, the reports are that they've got all that product on the books and because they're operating in a way that, uh, um, you know, theoretically at least are bleeding those stocks back onto the system, uh, it does kind of keep a downer on, on, on feed grain prices, on cotton prices, et cetera. Uh, and then therefore, you know, kind of, kind of puts a cap on the, on the overall markets. Uh, the, the point is going to come at, at, at some point in time in the future. I would think over the course of the next few years where they kind of have to take a different approach to their, their stock management. Uh, and if they're not bleeding those supplies back out onto the system, then that means the, you know, the, the that demand's got to be met someplace else or some other way. Uh, and so I think the potential for, uh, some, some upper price strength, uh, is, is out there. What, again, exactly when this turnaround happens, I, I don't know if it's, I, but, it, but you can see that sooner or later, uh, you know, we're going to have to get to that point. Obviously prices have been depressed or at least stagnant as there are larger domestic supplies of the U.S. and the global supply is up. If you measure it by volume, those supplies are big compared to history. But if you measure it by stocks-to-use ratio, still relatively small, yet the global customer seems to be content with a just-in-time supply of either oilseeds or feed grains. Exactly. And I think that's where, again, part of this is is this, uh, as I say, this Chinese supply bringing their stocks out, you know, adding to the supply situation so you can look at these stocks and say, well, they're, they're fine. We're, we're doing okay. But you're right. I mean, even, the, even at a couple billion bushel corn carryover, you know, that's about a month, a little better than a month's worth of use. And 
sure, I, I think that's a fine place for us to be uh, as long as everything works just exactly the way it's supposed to. But, you know, give me give me a little uh, supply shortage, give me a little weather scare someplace, and and things could pop, and I think pop reasonably hard. Wheat is, is, a, is another good example. Uh, yes, we've got some tremendous supplies of wheat, not just here, but around the world. Uh, but, you know, Russia ends up with a problem. Ukraine ends up with a problem. Uh, you know, that Black Sea supply ends up, uh, you know, with some pretty severe restrictions. And they basically have been buying market share by selling it to whatever price it takes to be able to move it. Uh, but you know, I know that that's a, a part of the world where climate can come back and kind of nip you in the bud, literally, uh, and, uh, you know, create some, some significant weather issues. I, I just think the potential is out there for some price movements as, as we go forward. Given the uncertainty, do you believe that the, the financial side of the new farm bill, the dollars and cents of a potential 18 bill, will that be the biggest challenge? I, I think so. They're going to fight some, uh, you know, very different philosophical approaches to legislation uh, and farm legislation than we've had in the past. Uh, you know, just go back to the last farm bill and the challenges we had getting that off the, the House floor. Uh, I, I don't think those challenges have gone away. Uh, I, I just think it's going to be real, real tough to, you know, to pull all that together and get the votes that they're going to need to get things off the House floor. Uh, you're going to get the same challenges about splitting nutrition programs away from farm programs and, you know, why are we funding this? And they're going to get payment limitation fights and, you know, all that stuff is going to go on again. Uh, it's just going to be hard. Uh, there, there's a reason I'm retired, maybe, is the way I should put that. <laughs> what guidance do you offer, or what's your observation uh, as the committee members and staffers come up with the ARC and the PLC program moving ahead? Number one, do you keep them both? And if you have them both, then how do you set those so they don't influence markets, but also at the same time, do provide a safety net that producers uh, need and that Uncle Sam can afford. Well, I, I really, again, because of the amount of money that's in those two programs, uh, I, I don't think that either program at this stage of the game are really influencing uh, producers' planning decisions. Uh, there, there might be some on, you know, on specific commodities, and you probably know what they are as well as I do, but. Uh, in general, I don't think that they're really influencing, you know, producers' planning decisions, uh, much to speak of at all. I think you want to set that safety net in a way that, uh, you know, if I have a, a one-year disaster, that that's not going to be what drives me out of business. You know, I'm not going to make money. It's going to be tough. I'm going to have to sharpen pencils. I'm going to have to, you know, maybe change what goes back to the family living expenses. You know, I'm going to have to you know, really look at the operation overall, but that it's not necessarily going to, you know, kick me out. If if one year disaster kicks me out, then I probably don't have the right structure of my farm program. And if that's insurance, if that's PLC, you know, if it's whatever it takes for that structure to keep me from getting, you know, blown away by one year, then that's probably where it needs to be. Now, is it going to is it going to be enough to save everybody? You know, no, but somebody that has a, a reasonable business plan, you know, reasonable financial reserves, all that kind of good stuff, one year shouldn't shouldn't blow them out. It appears to me that we've never set a policy that tries to save them all. And we right. know there is a certain number of people who have made choices with land and machinery or for one reason or another are in trouble today. 
There are others that are still burning up equity, but they're alive. And there is another group of people that has everything paid for, and they are profitable even at this level. At this stage of the game, with as many farmers as we have lost, what can we afford to do and what can we afford not to do, especially thinking about now bringing in another generation of farmers to replace some of the folks that are going to step out of the business? Well, I think you're exactly right that that almost at any price, and this this is a has been a long, long standing debate, uh, as you say about where do you set those support levels, where do you set, set loan rates, for example, where do you set the reference price for, uh, you know, for soybeans and in, in calculating an ARC payment or a PLC payment. You know, there's a lot of argument that says you ought to set it based on cost of production, and the answer always comes back you know, from any good economist is whose cost of production and what cost of production. If I set those, you know, the reference price so that I'm going to take care of, well, let me back up. Economic Research Service does these, you know, cost of production surveys and everybody will always complain about them on infinitum and always has and always will. But the fact of the matter remains, this is, you know, the engineering cost, the cost of putting the stuff in the ground and taking it out. You know, we, we, have a pretty good idea of what that, you know, the seed cost, fertilizer costs, chemical costs, you know, we've got a pretty good idea of what those numbers are. It's when you start coming back and adding in depreciation and, you know, do I have to, to provide some return to land? Do I have to provide some return to labor and management, et cetera? You know, that, that's when it starts to be a, a, a very different kind of number. I can show you the production cost curves for corn that'll have a low side of, uh, uh, under two bucks and we'll have on the high side seven dollars. So how, how do I set a, a support price that, you know, where, where do I decide I, I cut off or don't cut off? Canada used to, I don't know if they still do, but used to, uh, would do a, a pretty exhaustive uh, production cost survey on dairy production. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a managed price in, in Canada to figure out how to set that price and they would intentionally set that price so that 10% of the producers weren't making money, were losing money at, at the price that they'd set. So I, I don't know what's the right level. Um, it, it is going to be a challenge for, for, for new folks coming into the market uh, or coming into the business. Do they have family money, uh, you know, to kind of get them going? Is that a requirement for a farmer in the future that they have to bring family money with them? Um, I'm not sure how else they how else they get it done. That's going to be tough. I don't really answer that one for you, Jeff. I'm going to stay with that same stream because you know and I know that there have been and still are individuals that would like to say, we're going to help farmers of this particular size, and when you reach this particular category with a means test or otherwise, then you're not going to receive as much or any government support. What's the theory behind that, and what's the threat behind that? Well, I don't know that I know the theory behind that. Uh, again, because we are producing the... Uh, commodities. We're not producing specialty crops. Uh, and because they are commodities, um, you know, what difference does it make if I'm producing 10 or if I'm producing a million? Uh, you know, it's an entitlement program. And, and as long as I meet the criteria for the entitlement, what, why, again, why does it matter if I'm producing 10 or a million? And certainly there have been, there are, and you know, a lot of folks out there that like to push that, want to push that harder. 
Uh, Senator Grassley is a good example of somebody who, you know, believes very strongly that we shouldn't be providing more than X amount of support for an individual. Uh, you know, I guess if we want to go back to 600 acres or, or 400 acres or whatever, you know and I know that if, if we want these kind of commodity prices, these kind of food prices, uh, you're, you're going to be very hard-pressed to make money at 400 acres. I'm not saying it can't happen, but pretty hard-pressed to make money growing 400 acres of corn. Okay, let's turn a corner here. Are trade agreements and the hard-line approach that the Trump administration has had to negotiations is that a black swan that policymakers ought to be considering? Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, I, I, as as important as trade is to agriculture uh, at this stage of the game, I mean that's that's a potentially a huge huge deal. And, and I don't think this is being a you know somebody crying wolf or whatever. I, I think this is very serious. But uh, you know, think about the amount of trade uh, that we have with Mexico, the amount of trade that we have with uh, Canada. And, and what would happen to us if we'd lose those markets? Uh, the amount of trade that we have with China, for example, and what would happen if we'd lose that market? Uh, so let's do something to piss them off. The, the impact that that would have back to our markets, uh, I think would be huge. I've, I've frankly been amazed that the markets haven't, you know, at least out in some of those, uh, um, you know, well-extended options or whatever, just shown at least some concern or some scare. I uh, haven't yet, but boy, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Um, that again, we lose those export markets and we're going to talk about significant, significant price moves in a hurry. Bob, let's talk about the growth of the middle class and the globe. What are the hot spots now and what do you think are going to become the hot spots that we need to concentrate on? Well, obviously, uh, you know, China, without question, and I think they're going to continue to grow there, the size of their middle class. India, obviously, and uh, and I think that that's kind of a significant one as we uh, uh, roll downstream here. Once they finally get, you know, if they ever kind of get their government structures and economic policies, et cetera, you know, kind of properly shaped, I think there's a significant potential there for uh, for a middle class growth. Another one, though, that I think that you know maybe we've not paid as much attention to, but would have been very positive out of TPP was Vietnam. Um, you know, I think they're kind of following the, the Chinese model of, uh, you know, more or less capitalism as long as we've got a, a communist party in place. Um, and I, you know, I think they're going to show potential for a very significant middle class growth. Pretty strong agricultural power, too, in their own right. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, I, I think they're going to run into the same kind of, uh, animal protein issues that China has and, uh, you know, where are they going to go to get the feed and the animals and the meat itself and, uh, I think we're just going to be very well positioned or could be very well positioned to uh, uh, take account of that. I, I think for the most part, that kind of Southeast Asian market uh, would certainly kind of be where I'd look to. I don't think we've quite got the breakthroughs yet in uh, Africa to be able to talk about that. Latin America would be another place where uh, we've already got a pretty strong middle class in uh, in some of the countries. And I, and I think they're going to continue to grow as we roll forward. But Southeast Asia, I think, would probably be the highest high point on my list. The U.S. economy, compared to history, has low interest rates, low unemployment figures, and now a GDP that's above 3% for the last quarter. Given that, if you're offering suggestions for the new Fed, what direction do they take? I, I think the path that they're on of kind of you know modest uh, uh, interest rate increases as we roll forward, uh, don't get too carried away, watch what's happening to inflation, uh, I, I think probably is, is where we need to be, uh, as we roll forward. 
uh, you know, we are, as you talk about, not just our economy, but globally we're talking about economic growth almost uh, uh, every country at this stage of the game, which is a, a kind of rare situation. Uh, and I think as long as that kind of continues to roll forward, I'd, I'd, I'd say it probably would behoove us to talk about uh, doing some interest rate bumps, modestly, of, of course, but do some interest rate bumps now uh, because the day is going to come where maybe we're not talking about economic growth and not a whole lot of other levers out there for a guy to go pull. Bob, it seems that there are so many more issues that affect agriculture today in Washington. And the American Farm Bureau was one of the first to make the move to be in Washington, D.C., uh, to have lobbyists that were there to speak on behalf of farmers. What do you see of the future of keeping agriculture's voice present in the nation's capital among the people who are making decisions that affect the industry? Uh, I, I think it's critical. Um, you know, I, I think that we, uh, we, we tend to say that, uh, you know, the last thing we need are more lobbyists. You know, and you kind of have to say it that way, lobbyists. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that, that you know, they're lobbyists, but they're actually what I would consider them to be advocates. Uh, they're in there pushing for a position. In the case of Farm Bureau, we're pushing p- for positions that uh, their members, their uh, farmers and ranchers around the country had come in and said, this is important to us, uh, had sat down and said, this is important to us. And, and so, you know, they were in there carrying the message. Um, I, I think it's critically important that that message you carried. Don't don't forget that you know all the other folks around the country, all the other interest groups, et cetera, around the country. They're going to make sure their interests get get expressed. Uh, why would why would you not want to have that for uh, uh, for the agricultural sector? I think I think it's critically important. This presents a challenge for commodity groups because it costs money to be in D.C. and that price tag is not going down at all. No, and I and I think you've seen that uh, as as other farm organizations have adjusted, have shifted their size, uh, you know, shifted the number of folks that they put in place. Um, you know, it's just a fact of life that it is uh, it is a tough market to to continue to work in. Farm Bureau, for that matter, too, you know, is is not the same organization, not structured, not as large as it, as it used to be in terms of their uh, DC presence. Um, that's just that's just a fact of life. Well, Bob Young, we so much appreciate your tenure of service to U.S. agriculture and for you taking time from retirement uh, to visit with us here on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you get the last word. Well, again, I do think that one of the things that uh, I'm probably most worried about right at the moment uh, and have been for some time has been the position of this administration when it comes to trade. Uh, I understand that we had some folks that got left behind, uh, you know, as we've gone through past trade agreements. Not a question about that, but without question, we've had some places where we've had tremendous gains. And agriculture, I think, is one of those sectors that just had tremendous gains coming out of whether it was NAFTA, whether, you know, you name it, there was going to be tremendous gains out of TPP had we been able to get that ratified. On the other hand, there are some trade deals that, that, you know, probably, you know, ag maybe wasn't quite as excited about. The negotiations with Europe on the TTIP, I don't think agriculture was quite that excited about, and I think appropriately so. But I think it's very important that we don't uh, do harm, I guess I would say, as we go through this current round of negotiations or uh, or that we get on the stick when it comes to some of these bilateral negotiations that we were promised. When we walked away from TPP, we walked away from a lot of trade gains, and it was. It, I think it's critically important that we get back on that stick again very, very, very quickly. A lot of harm that could be done. 
let's just not do it. Just not good for agriculture at all. That's probably my big message at this stage of the game. Our thanks to Bob Young, president of Agriculture Prospects, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Edge, the dairy farmer cooperative that gives milk a voice. Learn more at voiceofmilk.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Talley.